I once heard somebody say, a man wrapped up in himself makes a very small present. That's well put. That's exactly what it is. The Shepherd in the Shrink podcast can only happen with your support. Please go to patreon.com, search for the Shepherd in the Shrink podcast and find all kinds of cool stuff that we have in store for you. You can build the heart of a lion with a strong mind and spirit because a lion's natural state is one of safety through courage, strength, and power. Hi, I'm the shepherd and pastor, Dr. Matt Hook. And I'm the shrink, Dr. Marty Fletcher. This is the show where theology meets psychology or mental health meets spirituality. Welcome to the Shepherd and the Shrink podcast. Marty, how are you today? Dandy, how are you? I'm swell. <laughs> Golly. I'm a little swolled. <laughs> hey, I am so excited about this topic because I think I know what it means. And there's a lot of people who think they know what it means. But to be able to ask a psychologist who has a practice and who is seeing people in pain and seeing people get well would be so good because you read, you see article titles about this all over the place. And the word is narcissism. Do you know why you see the article titles? Because I'm narcissistic. I don't know. No, no, you're not. You're you're humble. But you see it because people who know these people, about a half a percent have an actual full-blown disorder because it's a disorder. It's a personality disorder. We can go into that a little bit because it's different than the other types of disorders. Personality disorders are different than the other clinical things that, that we deal with. The biggest difference is the people with personality disorders suffer, but they also cause other people to suffer greatly. So there's about a half a percent is what the DSM-5 says, but still in a country this size, it's about 15 million people. You're going to bump into them. Suffer from personality disorders in general. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What are the names of some of the most prominent ones, including this one? Sociopathy is that. So if somebody's antisocial personality disorder is one, there's a histrionic personality. And that's those people who oftentimes you'll see them as performers, especially like in theater where they're overly dramatic, have superficial types of connect, come and kiss you on both cheeks and make life a performance. Borderline personality disorder is another one. That's where people are, you know, very terrified of being abandoned. So then they become aggressive. And then narcissistic personality disorder is another one. Now, that one is really hard to treat. You can maybe imagine why. So what I see is I see their victims, people who grew up with a narcissistic parent or is married or, or you know, has a relationship with a narcissist because, man, they put you through the ringer on that. But can you imagine why, why it's hard to treat or should, maybe we should define it first. I think you better define it because I have my own ideas. I'm sure everybody listening has their own ideas. So in Greek mythology, you know, the myth of Narcissus? Narcissus is a plant. Oh, because it's in the water. Yeah. So he fell in love with himself. And so he could just only stare into a pool. He was just transfixed by his own beautiful self. And so he couldn't love other people. He just gazed at his own reflection. Okay. That's sort of what it's like. Now, all children have to go through a narcissistic stage. That's where you're very self-centered and the whole world revolves around you. But guess what? The whole world was revolving around you till you get to be two or three. Then you have to learn no. And you're like, what's this, man? I call for a bottle and I don't I have to wait. This will not stand. So you have to learn that. But these folks get stuck in that, usually because they were traumatized. There are also some evidence that there's some genetic predispositions to that. So what you'll see is this. If you're in any type of relationship, it could be a boss or you know your spouse, God forbid, they aren't curious about your life. It's all about them. 
So I say, Matt, I just got a new car. And then suddenly, boom, you pivot and you're talking about your car. Oh, yeah, Mike, I remember when I got a car, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're not curious about other people. They tend to be very charming, okay, because they study people. So a narcissist can be very empathic, like they're not compassionate, but they, they know what you're feeling and they'll use it to exploit. So they study people in that way. They'll ask questions on a first date to just get to know what you like. Oh, you like kittens? He, he goes, okay, I'll file that away. Next thing you know, guys, sharing cat photos with mm. you, okay? They are very concerned about their own reputation and getting status and prestige on that. Very preoccupied with that. They, people are tools and instruments to, to meet their needs. And so they'll readily discard that if you're not meeting their needs and, and going to someone else. They do have empathy, but they don't have compassion. Compassion is empathy with a sincere wish for their suffering to stop. So you'll actually often take action or really feel with somebody. And the other thing that they do is they're either a hero, which is where they want to be, or they're a victim. They don't take responsibility for. So anything that we treat is on a continuum, which means at times we can display some of these behaviors, but then we'll feel sorry that we did it and, and make things right. Okay. Does that, that paint a good portrait, a composite of what a narcissist is? Yeah. It paints a sad portrait. Where's the sadness coming from? And it's understandable, but I want to hear your words. <laughs> I once heard somebody say, a man wrapped up in himself makes a very small present. Th that's well put. That's exactly what it is. Sorry. The other illustration is like a snake that starts eating its own tail. Ouroboros? What is that? Ouroboros. That's what the, uh, it's called, right? Ouroboros. I'll take you. I word. forgot my mythology. Well, you can't fact check me right now. We don't have time. So let's just lay, leave it at that. So the reason we can't treat them is, first of all, they're smarter than me, all of them, right? So they sit in the chair and I don't know. I've had them across from me in the room before. Not because they sought treatment because there's nothing wrong with them. It's you in the world and they don't understand my brilliance and beauty, whatever it is. But they'll come in with a spouse and boy, it's like antagonistic almost immediately. They want the upper hand and they feel like if I have the upper hand, which I don't, you know, I'm in service to other people, but they feel like that. So very thin facade. Hmm. So they're, they're easy to crack. Wow. Right? Their, their relationships are superficial. So once you start getting in into it with, with them and, and into the, and, you know, putting them on the spot a little bit. It sounds like you're speaking from experience of knowing that you're treating somebody and knowing what the characteristics are, where the rest of us might be interacting with somebody and maybe something's a little bit off, or we're just frustrated that they keep turning everything we're talking about back into what's going on in their lives and their thoughts and their opinions. Yeah, that's very much true. And at the end of it, we'll talk about how to tell if you're with a narcissistic person, some of the tells. So what are your thoughts about this? So now you've learned new definitions and descriptions. Like, so what do you think? I mean, are you, we're not going to name drop, but have you encountered people like that? I know there's been seasons in my life that I probably wasn't realizing it or subtly I was where I'm like, oh man, once in a while I try to try to turn the conversation back to myself. But yeah, there are people in small groups that I run. There's people in organizations that I've seen that I've been a part of, let alone the online stuff where everything's about me. And I think maybe social media completely exacerbates the idea of a narcissist. And, you know, when it comes to God's kingdom, when it comes to what it's supposed to look like in Jesus kingdom, he talks about, it's not first come first serve. And yet that's kind of where we put ourselves if we're narcissists, meaning God, we are completely and fully and fulfillingly loved by God. God puts us on a pedestal. We're his crowning creation. And yet some people stop there and think that we should be worshiped instead of being utterly oh, yeah. by God. Well, I was going to say that really, if you're following Christ and you're really going for theosis or being Christ-like, 
you can't be a narcissist because God's love is not transactional, right? He loves freely and gives freely to anyone. You can, as long as we don't reject it, we can have that. Let me ask this. Is a narcissist afraid of being inadequate? I mean, all of us are a little bit afraid of being inadequate. Yeah, they're afraid of any status or prestige hit that they would take, right? They're very preoccupied with what the world thinks about them. So oftentimes they get caught into the idolatry of seeking wealth, body walking at work. You know what that is, where you step over other people to get to where you want to go. They use people, notorious liars. Wow, that's Backstabbers. You know, what I was thinking about is knowing we were going to be talking about this a little bit and not knowing that much about it. I took the approach of looking at what does scripture talk about? What is humility? But the idea is the world doesn't need more look at me's. They're everywhere on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, everywhere. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I think what the world's looking for, and we can get to this later, is authentic, humble servants, not so that they can serve me but so that I could be transformed to serve other people. We'll get to that a little bit more. Please, let's get to that because humility is such a gift if you can get to that. Now, this is coming from two guys. One guy is on stage, you know, preaching, not on stage, but metaphorically on stage, you know, where, where you've got an audience and we, we, have, <laughs> we have a podcast right now. So what are we doing here? Are we narcissists? Well, there's a distinction. And what do you think the distinction would be? This is, distinction is it's not about us. This distinction is this is an act of service and you taking leadership on our podcast has been such an act of service. You, you talked to me early on, how do we get this message, this combination of what you had learned in the study of psychology and getting your doctorate and how can we add that to the message of faith that would help the maximum number of people? And that's what this whole podcast is about. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like the spotlight. You know that. And by the way, for what it's worth, you've been taking the leadership role too. So there you go. Humility right on the air live unscripted. Yeah. The whole idea of preaching on humility is weird. It's so awkward. That's a great definition of awkward preaching on, on humility. And do you know, humility is a spiritual discipline in the history of Christianity. It is a spiritual discipline. And so like Sunday morning, if I were preaching on humility, I'd be like, I'm so glad you're here this morning. Now, let me tell you all about how to be humble. You know what I mean? Just the platform itself makes it awkward. I'm glad I've, cause I've got it all figured out. And here's the deal. I love humility. I just don't want to be humbled enough to love it or to have to have it. You think you don't maybe, <laughs> but to me, it was a big relief to have the burden lifted. And by the burden lifted, I mean, I don't, care what people think about me because I've got a higher authority that I go to. That was a relief actually, you know, cause it's really hard. Like I was popular, fairly popular in high school, but man, that was a 24 seven job. And at times I was doing stuff, you know, at other people's expense, that was really bad. So it's not really, you do suffer with this narcissistic thing. You know what I mean? You, you don't feel free and relaxed and comfortable in your own skin, too self-conscious. Right. You know, it's interesting. There's so many times in the Gospels. We talk about the scriptures a lot on this podcast. 66 ancient documents written in three different languages, written on three different continents, and over the course of 1,600 years that have transformed people's lives. And they are about their experiences. It's not a treatise about who God is or something like that. It is simply people encountering God throughout their lives and, and in the history of the nation of Israel. And then along comes Jesus of Nazareth, and that changed everything. And so like people in the Bible didn't know they were in the Bible. So here's the disciples of Jesus following him, 
And they they repeatedly keep saying, Jesus, can I be number one in your kingdom? You know, when you take over, can I be seated at your, John and James, can I be seated at your right hand? And can I be seated at your left? When you do this, Lord, who's the greatest among us? And it's so relevant to today. In my mind, I kind of sum it up like this. We read the Bible, not because of it's about what happened, but it's about what always happens. Yes. It's patterns of reality. That's what the Bible is. Yeah. And it's interesting. The disciples were both humble and they were humbled enough to tell this story on themselves. One time, this is from Mark chapter nine, and the disciples and Jesus came to Capernaum, which you can still visit today. These are real places. And when Jesus was in the house, he began to question the disciples. What were you discussing as we were walking on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another, which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said to them, if anybody wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. They kept silent because I think they knew better. They, he had just said, if anyone wishes to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And less than one chapter later, the disciples are building themselves an audience again. And they still didn't get that humility and every other spiritual discipline that we pursue means we're performing for an audience of one. Like unlike you and me in high school who are trying to perform for the school in order to be popular, well-liked, you know, for good reasons. I mean, yes, it's all about us, but we're wanting to do it in whatever ways we're wanting to do it. Our whole purpose of this podcast, our whole purpose of looking at spiritual disciplines is to perform for an audience of one, to shift our attention, our eyesight from ourselves and to shift it to God. And that goes with humility. And here's the thing about humility. It really kind of sucks. <laughs> I mean, it's good, but when we're initially approaching it, I appreciate humility. I just don't want to be humbled enough to have it. I don't want to be humble. And sometimes I'm like, I want to serve Jesus. The problem is I don't really want to serve anybody else. But Jesus said, whoever wants to be greatest among you must be the servant of all. Jesus said, whenever you're doing good things for the least people in your society, you're doing them for me. Yeah. Can I say, say one thing about that? Cause I think that's important. People get it backwards. Okay. It's there's utility to humility. Uh, oh, it rhymes. Ooh, there's, utility to again. Humility. there's utility in humility. And what that means is this, we have it backwards. Like what you said with social media, TikTok, Instagram, look at me, look at me, look at me. Okay. You don't get really rewarded by getting people to adore you. Right. It doesn't really. And if it is, it's, it's not lasting very long. A humble servant is useful to people right? They appreciate that they're kind and they're gentle and they listen. And that's what the world rewards. If you want to be successful, find something that someone needs and serve them. They'll be more than glad to pay you usually. Yeah. Find a way to help. That was one of the first things I wanted my kids to learn when they walk into a situation or walk into rooms, into a room and say, how can I help this situation, whatever it is. Because it's good for them though. Think about what you taught them. Okay, look, you want to be a part of something. You want to feel belong so you can, you know, kind of relax and feel a part of something. Here's how you do it. You gave them away. And now it's not being wonderful, the best looking or, you know, whatever, the most yoked pastor in the chair in that, you know, in the conference. It does it doesn't, you know, it's superficial. And there will be some people who like the superficial stuff that will for a while, but I've seen those pastors and leaders fall. And when they fall, they fall. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because 
applying it to ourselves. Here's what I mean when I say it stinks. We fight internally the need to be humble, the knowledge that God calls us that way. You know, we want to be good people. I believe most everybody wants to do the best they can, and they're trying to do the best they can. But I think that they've felt how much it can stink too. If you have to serve people who aren't even grateful, if you have to serve people who have no appreciation for how hard it is to keep the household together, if you have to serve people who have no idea how hard it is to stay positive about your work, or if you have to serve people who have no idea how hard it is in your shoes, walking a mile in your shoes. I mean, so many of us go through life and we do stuff that we do and it leaves us humiliated rather than humble. So some of us, if you're like me, every once in a while, I'm like, Jesus, you be the humble one. I'm so busy worrying about myself. I'm too busy worrying about myself to mess with it. The fact that you're saying this means that you're not narcissistic. What you're doing is, I think that humility is a step towards self-acceptance. Because think about it this way. So many people are so worried about being embarrassed or judged or, or have their faults out there. That means you're not accepting yourself. It's a relief to know, hey, man, I'm Marty Fletcher. I can definitely make a mistake. Okay. I've done it before. Why would it surprise me if one happens now? I'm grateful that it doesn't happen more often, actually, because the world's complicated and I'm fallible. Right. Right. So how's that not all upside? Yeah. Have you noticed how... Some people find it hard to be humble because they're so busy focused on being right. For sure. Or it's hard to be humble because some of us are so focused on putting ourselves first. Or the opposite, we're so busy worrying about what other people think about us that worry, or some people are so busy worrying about their humility, about their future, basically about themselves. And every single one of these cases and everything we're talking about, the people who put themselves out there and the people who don't, the fact is their focus is on themselves. And when you focus on how great you are, or when you focus on how great you are, when you focus on how great you're not, you're still focusing on you. Yeah. And what do we know about the self-conscious emotions, Matt? What do we know about the self-conscious emotions? They stink. They stink. They hurt. They're painful, right? That's, a, you know, guilt, you know, deep self-reflection on, on my mistakes and whatever is still deep self-reflection. It's the shame, you know, where you judge yourself, worry that everyone else is going to judge. So, well, and people who seek counseling and who are trying to take proactive steps and people who are seeking therapy to take proactive steps, sometimes the pain is so big or the problems are so big, you can't ignore it anymore. And that mm -hmm. ideally when they would call you or when they would ask me who who I would recommend to help them come alongside them as they work on that. Yeah. I think that we're, we're, we're the secular priesthood. So the people who don't know how to go to God or, you know, and we, we're more than that because we have clinical tools, but we're not, you know, because that's when you would go to your pastor or priest when you were having these crises. Yeah. You know, I think so many people are in so much pain and how much of that is self-inflicted because they're narcissists, so they can't think outside of themselves. And the truth is, whenever you focus on yourself, you're being drawn away from others. You know, the pain is so big. I can't think about you because I'm in so much pain, whether it's an emotional pain is real pain, isn't it? Oh, it's worse, actually, because I would ask, I asked people this periodically and say, well, which would you rather have? Especially when they minimize their emotional pain. I'm all right. That's just life kind of thing. I say, would you rather have a, a broken arm right now or feel what you're feeling right now? They never say the broken arm. 
emotional pain causes suffering. Physical pain, you know where it's going. You have a treatment for it. You don't blame yourself for it. You don't feel like you're you know, rotten person or flawed person. That's why it's happening. But the emotional pain really gets us on a spiritual level too, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many layers to it. Which would you rather have, Matt? Would you rather have emotional pain? Think about like uh, intense anxiety that you've had over period or depression. Would you rather have a broken leg or that? I'd take the leg. Yeah, you take the physical pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, somehow it's more acceptable. Somehow you can see a way out. There's more empathy. People see, oh man, that stings to have that. And here's what's tricky, I think, as we're looking at people who know narcissists or people who are looking at elements of their lives where you're like, wow, how am I doing in that area? I think it's so funny because the problem with how to treat it, let alone spiritually treat it with Jesus idea of humility. And it's really funny. As soon as we think we're humble, we're not. And here's what I mean by that. I think truly, genuinely humble people are inattentive to their own humility. They don't even think about themselves as humble. As a matter of fact, they rarely think of themselves at all because they're too occupied with the well-being of others to guard their own interests or self-importance. There's a huge trust factor going on here. That's what I would call faith. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. That's an equation. That's an equation. That means equal amounts on both sides. It's really out of balance with people, especially the patients I see, but just in general, people tend to be kinder to other people and animals than they are to themselves. You see that all the time. They just really, it's so sad because they're oftentimes just beautiful, just kind, gentle people. But those voices that got in their heads when they were young, usually, or in bad relationships or bullied at school or something, it becomes internalized. Then they start doing it. They start taking over where the bullies left off. Wow. That's crazy. Here's a bit of good news from the spiritual side. The Bible says when it comes to humility and and being able to stand up to narcissism from without or from within, the Bible says you can cultivate humility. You can grow in it. It's not something you're just born with. It's a spiritual discipline. And Jesus himself said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of everybody. For even the son of man, talking about himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he showed it too. Yeah, because advice is tough. Language is limited in what it can say. But Christ is there washing Peter's giant Fred Flintstone feet. You know, he showed us how to do it. He just completely humbled himself. Said, this is the way that you do that before he was going to his death and crucifixion. Yeah, that's crazy. I'm guessing that Peter had big feet because he was kind of aggressive. Right, right. Yeah, well, he was a fisherman. Yeah, and he was always charging in on everything. Yeah. I think humility, and this maybe is part of a solution, it comes from a place of strength. For us to break away from narcissism, to break away from the um, patterns that come along with that, you keep talking about that because, because look, the truth is oftentimes seems paradoxical, but I think that you're dead right on that because people are afraid to be humble because they think it's weak. Tell me how you understand. Cause I've, I figured that out too, or someone taught it to me, but I learned that, oh no, I was weak when I was fronting, when I was arrogant and let you know how smart I am or whatever, or, but so to, how's that strength? Cause you're, you're exactly right. There's a couple of ways that humility is strength. And I think first of all, Jesus says it's something you cultivate, that by his spirit in us, we can become humble. But I think it's hard because it takes discipline. It's called a spiritual discipline, the discipline of humility. And discipline is something that that great men and women exhibit 
behind closed doors. They're not just for the show. It happens away from all the crowds, from the people cheering. It happens away from your phone being held in your hand as you're doing all these great things for yourself. And Given privately, right? We're instructed to give privately. We, you don't have to, you know, uh, put your name on it or announce what you've done or, or sound that trumpet because I think that he's teaching us humility. You know, don't pray and fast to say, look how holy I am. Look how pious I am. Do it so no one knows. So your father in heaven will reward you because you're going for worldly rewards. You're aiming the wrong direction. I think that's huge because a truly humble person doesn't need applause to feed their hunger for excellence. And it's going back to the discipline aspect of humility first, and for this to be able to combat narcissism. Here's a perfect example. We love great music. We admire great art. We envy the coordination, the skill that great athletes, let alone their strength. But we easily forget that it's the discipline that we didn't see that made them so good. And I think that goes with people who are gifted at good living. And so here's the deal. We try to emulate the great artists, the great athletes when they're on stage or in the arena or in the stadium or whatever. But we don't often try to emulate them in the gym or in the practice room or in the studio where they're doing all the blood, sweat and tears. And say that again, man. Yeah. We try to emulate the great people that we see mostly on our phones. We try to emulate them on the stage or in the arena or in the stadium. We very seldom try to emulate them in the gym or in the practice room or in the studio. Yeah, we want the reward. And, and that's consumer Christianity, don't you think? You know, where, hey, I like this religion because all I got to do is ask for stuff and I can get it. And you're not practicing any of the disciplines, including. Well, right. And here's me, 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 me. Oh, there you go again. See? And here's the deal. What's true of musicians and artists and athletes is just as true among people seeking to live like Jesus. If you see someone with their spiritual life reflecting Christ, you can be sure that person cultivated disciplines of godliness and humility and so many other ways that we try to live that out. But why, Matt, though, if we want to be so wonderful and great, you know, and popular and get this whole life thing down, why are we looking to musicians and athletes and not looking to the son of God? That one man that completely changed the world in a positive direction like no other person ever. Why are we not looking at that and saying, I want to be like him? Yeah, that's crazy. Well, I think, I mean, I think an honest answer for why we love great performances is that we were designed to appreciate the creation that God did. We're designed to appreciate, although we don't think about the blood, sweat, and tears that went into it. God is a great artist. So we're built into our DNA. We're made in the image of God that we're designed to see that and love that and appreciate that. But it takes a turn though, Matt. It takes a turn. When I stop appreciating that guitar solo and start appreciating the guy, then I've made a bad turn. Yeah, I don't want to play like you. I want to be like you. I want to have that thing, you know, because we call them idols for a reason, you know, like American Idol. You did a whole week of that once, remember, or a whole sermon series on American Idol. And we call them that. We call them stars. Stars represent biblically the council, the the higher beings and, and all that. We're calling a person a star or an idol. I think we do that because we want to avoid all the suffering that it takes to get there, learning to rely on God, because we think that there's an easier way. I mean, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Find a shortcut. And here's the deal. In, in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul encourages Timothy, he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness in order to reflect God's good character. 
Godliness, being like Christ, has one important difference when it's compared to music and art and athletics. Unlike those pursuits, godliness has no public performances in mind, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to humility. That's what's so ironic about this whole conversation. If anybody else notices, it's incidental. It's so bizarre. It's such an oxymoron in some ways. Yeah, it's upside down. I mean, the kingdom of the world, we know who's ruling these things, right? And it's upside down. The promise of happiness is leading to misery in the world. Say something about the difference between humility and low self-esteem. Yeah. So low self-esteem is prideful, if you think about it. Now, it doesn't feel like that because people misunderstand pride, right? But you learned, oftentimes, look, these, the people with the real low self-esteem, oftentimes they were told that they were not worthless in many ways. They were shown that they were worthless by the way that they were treated. So what happens, they get over-focused on themselves and because they had to, to survive. Like, I got to be really careful. I got to worry, did I cause that? Or they get blamed, you know, the parent or sibling or somebody blame shifted. Or people were, so it's a preoccupation with yourself and your status and your current low status. Low self-esteem is a preoccupation with your current status. Because you're you're judging yourself, right? You're judging yourself in a really bad way. So it doesn't elevate you at all. It's a really painful thing to do to think that you're, you know, not as good as and those people oftentimes compare themselves to other people too, right? And then they feel awful. But look, you're self, you're egocentered. Now, humility is or egocentric. Humility is this giving joyfully and freely with nothing in return, but that reward, that reward that I helped someone to maybe feel better or or, or I let them talk. You know what I mean? I didn't interrupt. And I was very curious when I did it. That is the reward. It's intrinsic, right? That's humility. That's really good. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's right. Right. When you when you had some of your best times experiences, it was so free that you didn't even recognize the passing of time. You were so in the moment and so in that zone. And you forget about yourself. You absolutely do. And that's when we're our best. Like you talk about dancing, right? Talk about that a little bit. When I became a great, a great dancer, when I became a good dancer, I am a good dancer. People invite my family to weddings because we're zany on the dance floor. You get invited to more parties if you know how to dance. When I became a good dancer, and it was probably kind of, I guess in high school, it was like post-disco era. It was all those great one-hit wonders of the early 80s. And yet a lot of us had learned kind of dancing from the pop stuff when we were younger adolescents from the whole disco kind of thing. When I became a good dancer is when I forgot about what I looked like and I focused on the girl I was dancing with or the group I was dancing with. And so I didn't make it, I didn't even think about myself. I just was thinking about the people I was dancing with and trying to help them have fun and feel the music. Yeah. Now go opposite. Let's say myself and put it on the person I was dancing with. I became a good dancer. How does that work? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's what it is. It's a, it's flow is what, is what psychologists call it. It's flow. You're just so in the moment because you're not self-conscious. Look, if you're going to choke, if you're shooting a free throw in a tense situation, you're going to choke when you become self-conscious. And that same way when you, you know, on the dance floor or on stage in any way or life or public speaking, when we get people to, because people fear public speaking actually more than death. At least they say that in the questionnaires, right? What we teach them to do is this, because the self-consciousness is what does it. Am I, I've bombed on stage. I'm sure you have, you've done enough speaking. Have you bombed? Okay. As soon as you get the feeling that you're bombing, guess what happens? You start thinking more about yourself. 
oh man, now it's your trouble. So what we tell people to do is like, you know, pick a person, not the whole time, but just vary with people and talk to a person. Because when we make eye contact, it's hard to be self-conscious. Notice that. And that's why people who have social anxiety and low self-esteem, they don't want to look you in the eye. That keeps them in that self-consciousness. But when you look at someone in the eye, not in a weird way, glance away periodically, but you don't think about yourself. It's almost impossible. Right. You know, there's a great line, I think, by Eleanor Roosevelt. And she said, you wouldn't worry so much about what other people think of you if you realized how seldom they do. Yeah, right. Now, if you're a narcissist, that's going to crush you. Yeah, that's great. Sorry, guys. Hey, I want to stop right here, though, because there are some people who are in so much pain of whatever form. How do you go from being a person in pain? Of course, this is why people make appointments and and get help from their insurance, their health insurance companies for people like you to help them out of this. When you are in so much pain, it's hard to think about anything else. What would you say? Because you're living with a narcissist or maybe you're realizing, oh my gosh, you know, I fit the description or something. Yeah. So two things there, like if you're having the low self-esteem problem and things like that, you know, therapies is great. And one thing interesting about therapy, like nobody doubts that it works. There's been enough research to show. And then that's why we get insurance reimbursement. You know, it's a good move for healthcare to get people in there. Okay. So that relationship is central to it, right? There's something, let's not minimize that. You're in the presence of the most complicated creature, complex creature, and you are too. You're, you're the same thing. When two people get in there and start exploring reality and putting it in order when it's disordered, there's something that, assuming you have a good therapist that you feel comfortable with and, and a good match. So that that's a healing relationship. Now, if you're with a narcissist, there's certain things that you have to do. You have to really learn to be assertive. And oftentimes, if, if you can't get out of the relationship, because sometimes you have to get out of that relationship because they seem to be incorrigible. It's very hard to treat narcissistic personality disorder if it's, if it's like that. Narcissistic behaviors, yeah. You were poorly taught or you know, weren't aware of what you're doing. That, that can be corrected. But if you have like the full-blown, I'm going to exploit people for my own self-interest, if you can't escape it, then we sometimes teach what's called gray rocking, which means this. Give up the dream. It's been 30 years in this marriage. Give up the dream that they're going to be that husband or wife that you want. Okay, just you got to give it up and you gray rock them, which means you have as little contact as you can with them. So if you're raising kids and things like that, you have to learn to meet your social and spiritual needs with other people, right? Because anybody, if I'm in a situation where someone's being abusive to me, I can't endure that too much long. It does damage. Something's going to happen. I'm not going to keep my peace long. Right. So, so sometimes I have patients that I think were spiritually abused by leaders in churches that tell them to stay into that because there's a rule that says you can't protect yourself. So you're married and it doesn't matter how awful it is. You need to stay there. That's bad advice. Sorry, but it is. I'm going to say that because I've seen the damage that it's done. On the other hand, I've seen relationships. One, this guy was a, looked like a full-blown narcissist. I was treating his spouse and something miraculous happened. It's such a good relationship now. I can't say too much more because I don't want to give out, somebody might recognize the, the person, but really I can only describe it as miraculous. So it's possible, but it's not common that that gets healed in there. So that, that, that's my advice. Therapy, please do it. You know, do it, if not for your sake, the people around you. You know, you may not be aggressive, but if you're suffering, guess what? They're going to suffer with. 
right? If you're depressed, that's really tough on marriages and things like that. So, you know, you, you go get yourself some help. Seek God first with all your heart, soul, mind. I mean, you have to be really hungry for, for that. Not as a, okay, let me solve my problem. So I'll read this Bible and then I'll, that's the wrong attitude. It won't get you where you want to go. Right. You know, one other thing that, that I found hope in, and the first time I thought about it, it was really having to do with leadership, but it has to do with this idea of humility coming from a strength, a place of strength and inner security. Genuinely humble people have a desire to seek the well-being of others. And people who genuinely seek the well-being of others are generally very secure people. And you have to realize if you're with an narcissist, seeking their well-being may not be pouring into their narrative the way they want you to. No, they call them emotional vampires because they drain you. If you're feeling drained by someone that you're with, then that's a good indication that maybe you're with someone who's narcissistic. That's powerful. And here's the deal. Most people who turn around and help someone else, where did they learn that? Except that they were themselves helped in the same way. If you know how to stop and help somebody when they're on the side of the road, change a tire. If you know how to stop and help somebody when they've dropped everything that they were carrying. If you know how to stop and help somebody just long enough to say, how are you? Is everything okay? You're putting yourself out there. Your trust is not in that relationship. Your trust has to be in something so much greater, which is, I think, why faith in God has so much to do with what we're talking about. But most people who turn around and help someone else, they were on the receiving end. So they know good ways to reach around and help somebody. Then they themselves were helped in that same way and they know how to do it because they received it. You know, and if you want to take that one step further into a spiritual direction, because Jesus came and lived and died for you, when you put your faith in that, you realize you have been served. And you know how to do it because you know what it's like to be on the receiving end even before you're aware of it. And it translates into actions that can be observed. And I, I guess I just say that if you're wondering how to be or how to get out of where you are, chances are it could have been by your grandma. You know, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to be a servant for many. And that's what I love about the Bible. When you go in and you read it, it's not about perfect people and how to do it right. It's not a bunch of platitudes like that. It's why I love the disciples. We give them such a bad rap because they're so clueless and they ask such stupid questions. But I'm thankful for them and for their stupid questions because I have those same questions. But they also developed, though. It's important to, to, to note that. Oh, my gosh. How they started wasn't how they finished, right? After the resurrection, uh, total attitude adjustment. Mm -hmm. And the Holy Spirit came. It says... In the end of John, Jesus breathed on them, receive the Holy Spirit. And, you know, with James and John, they wanted to serve Jesus, but they thought it was going to be in a different way. They wanted Jesus to just overthrow the Romans because it was Roman occupation of Israel and the Israelites were basically slaves. They weren't entirely wrong. They wanted to keep Jesus in his rightful place. They just didn't want to serve anybody else. And that's us, isn't it? You know, it's hard enough to submit to Jesus, who's perfect. But think of giving up our comfort, our position, or our time, or our resources for the sake of another human being who might abuse his or her authority. That's a whole lot tougher. In Jesus' kingdom, it's not first come, first serve. It's not look at me, 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 mine, 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 mine. It's suffering that gets the reward, not selfish suffering. It's selfless sacrifice yeah you should i think that i want you to say more about that because here i don't want people to have the misunderstanding that by doing this you're going to be exploited 
it is a strength because I think for me, it's confidence. What's confidence feel like? It's not arrogance because everything good has something that the enemy masks as. It's not arrogance. Arrogance, I'm tense. My body's tense. I'm self too self-aware. I'm not at ease. Confidence is like our intro to this podcast, I think. it's That's what a lion is, right? He just, he's relaxed because he doesn't have any threats. He's, he knows that no one's going <laughs> to kind of mess with them. So he can relax most of the time, stretch out, yawn, take naps wherever he wants. You know, that's what you get. There's a peaceful strength that comes from this position. That's the strength of it. Observe. You know? It's so, so much of a, not an oxymoron. What's the other word? Paradox. Paradox. So much of a paradox. Yeah. So a couple of things that I would say just from my end of things as a shepherd, humility comes from a place of strength and inner security, because if you're not secure, you're not going to worry about somebody else. You're only worried about yourself. So if you can remember how it felt like to be on the receiving end and start offering that to people, that would be huge. People who turn around and help somebody else have experienced what that looks like. Do it before you feel like it. Do it before you feel like it. Number two, I was going to say humility grows out of gratitude. And I know we've talked about gratitude. We kind of circle back. But what prompts gratitude? For me, it was, I remember in third grade when my grandpa died at his funeral, we sang this song. And the chorus goes, on the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine. I was like, wait, what? A wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross, Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. And even as a kid, I feel gratitude. God humbled himself to go where I was supposed to go in order to win me by that. Is that humility? Yes. Love? Yes. Is it crazy? You bet. And I hear veterans say the same thing. I'm not the hero. My friend who was killed is the hero. And they can tell you about that guy. Eisenhower said, I found this quote, shortly after Germany's surrender in 1945, humility must always be the portion of any man who receives a claim earned in the blood of his followers and the sacrifice of his friends. And spiritually, if you have this, the Christian idea that God humbled himself for you and for your salvation, humility comes from this gratitude. A heart filled with gratitude can't be anything but humble because they know it's a gift. Yeah, yeah. You didn't earn it. And it was enough said about that. But that's really important for people to meditate on. Like hear it now and really let it soak in and, and test it. You know, think about the people or, or moments in your own life when you felt that and what a relief it is to let that self-conscious stuff go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's something interesting. Paul writes the Christ followers in Philippi, chapter two, verse three, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And that goes for the person you're living with or the person you're concerned about who's toxic. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others. So humility is acting like a servant. And here's maybe one of the final things that I would say is, how do you know if you're growing as a servant that God's called us to serve? It's easy. See how you react when you're treated like one. Oh, that's good. How do you know if you're growing as a servant? See how you react when somebody treats you like one. I really like that. And, and humility, boy, what a difference it makes in your life. Narcissists around you are fighting from within your own heart or not. Humility increases your faith. It's the ultimate act of faith because 
if I'm being humble, it means I am giving up worrying about myself. I am, if I'm putting myself ahead of other people, it's different. But if I'm putting others ahead of myself, I can't do that unless I have faith that God genuinely cares about me. And even if these crazy people I'm with who don't appreciate me, if they're not going to genuinely care for me, I, my trust is still that God genuinely cares for me. And if I have that faith, I can face it. Let's remind people, though, we're not telling you to stay in abusive relationships because you're important too. love yourself as you love your neighbor. And if someone's doing something to hurt you, we're not saying endure that. OK, totally agree. Yeah. Getting out of an unhealthy relationship is not promoting yourself. Also, I, I really like what you said. I'm going to think about that today. How do you endure a rejection, right? Or a slight, a rude comment? Now, some of us would be really sensitive, though, if we have a history of abuse, you know, or, or neglect or, or lived with a, a, you know, rage-filled parent or something like that. So we have to work on that because that is an obstacle for something that's really, really good for you. Do you want to go through some of the ways to look? Because it's getting a little late. We should do another show on this if this is popular. So I'll have a few things and maybe we can do another show because people like this topic. So we might want to. Okay, so how do you know if you're living together? Oh, let's be honest with ourselves too. Maybe you're narcissistic. I don't know. You, you want to ask yourself that because if you are, that's okay. You want to get past it, okay? Well, they have crazy mood swings because a narcissist wants to control people with usually anger, Right. Or it can also be tears of penitence, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. You know how I be, baby. I love you. You know, but they're doing it to manipulate. It's not true emotion. So, you know, as far as anger in James, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Doesn't say don't ever be angry because we need that energy sometimes. Anger is an appropriate emotion in many situations. Yeah, but we're way on the wrong side of that in this culture. Like, you know, this outrage culture that we're seeing and the punishment culture, that's a, that's a poison. So we want to be slow to anger, you know, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So let's be careful about, about that. Some, some people were told not to be women, especially report this a lot that, you know, that their anger wasn't now women are every bit as aggressive. And some research shows more than men, depending on what you call it, not physically, they're not men are. But if it comes down to gossiping and reputation bashing and things like that, yeah, they're aggressive too. So we want to, you know, it's not all guys doing it. Okay. They're very judgmental, right? They're very judgmental of other people. So we don't need, there's all sorts of scripture that we don't have to quote on that because one thing that's really psychologically astute about the Christ brought to us was that emphasis on how damaging it is to you and others to judge. And by judging, we don't mean, you know, it means don't condemn. You're not that type of judge. Now, somebody's abusive and things like that doesn't mean pretend like it didn't happen. You can absolutely evaluate that, right? It's not an evaluation. It is a condemnation of another person where you don't have grace and mercy for them, okay? The other thing they do is they change history to manipulate people, and that's called gaslighting. So they'll tell you, they'll revise history to make you doubt yourself. Because if, if you doubt yourself, you're not confident, you're weak, and they can manipulate you, Okay. The other thing, I guess I'll do one more. In the church, they'll often twist the word to serve their own needs, or they'll be the smartest person in the room. So they're going to educate everyone, even though you didn't ask them what they thought, they're going to tell you every bit about it. And there's the assumption that you're wrong and they're right. And they're the authority. I've seen that in home groups before. It's not coming from a, a place of servitude, right? I'm not trying to maybe gently help you to something that would help yourself. I want to show you how smart I am. They'll take credit for things. 
that they don't deserve. So they work on a project or something and they, they did it. We can do another show on this because it's getting late and I want to keep it. But, you know, I, I hope that, that people take from this and I'd like to know what you think in summary. The teachings of Jesus Christ and in the scriptures is an antidote to this. And it's a different way of living because we live in a culture of narcissism where it's celebrated and it's promoted. And we given free tools like Instagram that if we want to use them that way, we can take selfies all day and, you know, look at me and put the filters on and, and, you know, ask yourself if you're doing some of that, what do you really want? Do you want to conform to the patterns of the world? Or are you looking above a, a God, the, the person who has unconditional love and created you? And we kind of owe it to him, I think, to take care of ourselves in the way that he wants us to. Right. And I think humility, as strange as it sounds, is a great remedy and a great protection. Yes. Yeah. You've taught me so much. One thing I learned is this. I got to be the nicest guy I've ever met, given what you've taught me today as I reflect on it. Well, let's all reflect on it. You know, seriously, remember gratitude. Remember what it feels like and offer that to somebody else and realize anything that you're doing is a gift from God anyway. So don't take the credit. Hey, let's pray. Let's do. God, thank you so much that your word says that we worship you, Lord Christ, who did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and then humbling himself even to the point of death. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are the king, that you are the one. And so, Lord, I just pray that in the midst of that, in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of the fear that we have, that we won't get noticed, that we won't get remembered, that we will get left behind, or we won't get our needs met. God, we offer all of those needs to you, all those fears to you, and pray, God, for your healing in that. Thank you so much for Marty and for his insight and his research and how you've worked through him. Thank you, God, for everybody who's a part of this Shepherd and the Shrink podcast family, and ask, Lord, that you would help us find ways to serve. Lord, we've been on the receiving end, and it's time, God, for us to let go of some of that in order that we could share and pass it on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, Matt. Yes. True or false, if you become a patron, you can do it on lots of levels. And there's all kinds of cool swag. And we're going to be doing a Q&A when we get a few more people involved. And that there's a special offer on a Gator. And you can uh, get all of these videos emailed right to you. True or false? That is so true. There's some really cool stuff available for people who support us on a monthly basis and who support this ministry, if you want to call it that, that we're trying to minister to people through conversations about scripture, theology, and psychology. It's pretty unique. And I'm all about the bling, you know. How about this one? Uh, True or false? We are not only in the United States, but we're growing in other continents, such as Africa. Yeah, there's people from other countries who are tuning in and who are getting involved. True or false? Anyone can get involved right now by going to patreon.com and searching The Shepherd and the Shrink podcast. That is true. And you can see the different levels of involvement. There are some people who are able to give $5 a month. There's some people who can give $100 a month or more. I like the dollar donors too, because that tells me that here's someone who really, really wants to do it. That really encourages me. There's expenses that we have, even though it sounds like we're just having a conversation. They, The folks who do our editing and things like that clean it up and make it sound terrific. And they get it on the platform so that more and more people can enjoy it. Please come on board. It's a lot of fun. Do, do some good in the world. Thanks so much. 
Thanks for listening to the Shepherd and the Shrink podcast. You can check out the show notes from this episode, get free resources, discover more about our work, and all the ways to subscribe so you never miss an episode of the show. Head over to drmartinfletcher.com.